The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. Religious life and its ritual acts and its stories is not actually a cycle. It's more like a spiral where we meet the stories each year is not ever in exactly the same place, but someplace slightly different, a different us facing a different set of circumstances, asking different questions in our life meets the same stories. And when we throw ourselves up against these stories or the story up against our lives, different things inevitably stick to us or stand out for us. What you took away as a kid or a teenager or a person starting out life independently at each decade, each year is different or often different. Something new can grab you by the collar and ask you to pay attention. And we're in a season right now of such stories, Passover, Lent and Holy Week, Easter next Sunday, Ramadan 2 is happening right now, began March 22nd, ends April 21st. And you could say something similar about the way we bump up against and meet rituals and disciplines like fasting and prayer in that particular observance how it affects us differently each year, and we meet it differently. But I'm thinking today about stories in particular and about one story in particular, the Passover story. <clears throat> Starting Wednesday of this week in Families and Community Seders, one sacred story of this season is going to be retold as it has been for thousands of years. 3,000 years ago, the story says, Pharaoh kept a people enslaved. Through a twist of fate, a small boy ended up in Pharaoh's court and led the people to freedom. But the road was rough. It always is. Freedom comes almost always at a price. Frederick Douglass famously explained why, saying, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. Find out just what a people will quietly submit to, and you have found the exact measure of injustice and wrong which will be imposed on them. And these will continue, continue till they are resisted with either words or blows or with both. The limits of tyrants are prescribed by the endurance of those whom they oppress. I heard once from a professor of decision theory, which is this subset of psychology that often merges with economics, that people, we, literally value things more, that is, put a higher dollar value on them when they are ours, more than we would have valued that same thing before it was ours. And psychologists have also shown 
that when we lose something, when it's taken from us, that the pain we rate at having the thing taken from us is higher than the pain we acknowledged and self-reported when we got the thing in the first place. All of which, to me, starts to explain some of Douglas's observation that we human beings, we don't like to give up anything that is ours including the intangible but real possessions of power and privilege. So, for that reason and so many others, ego and its fragile and sometimes dangerous power over us, so power concedes almost nothing without a demand, almost ever. And liberation, as Desmond Tutu once said, liberation is costly. It resonates with me this year how much this is true. Some of us read a novel last month called Babel by a young and incredible Chinese-American writer and scholar, R.F. Kwan, also known as Rebecca Kwan. In the book, young people who are raised bilingual all over the world, some of them are brought in as specialized translators into the gorgeous, rarefied world of 19th century Oxford University, into its fictional Royal Institute of Translation. In local slang, these scholars are called the babblers, a particularly revered group of scholars who will, in many ways, keep the world, the British Empire, strong and dominating, given a power that involves words and magic that they will soon learn how to wield. To be one of these elites, the babblers, is it's best that you speak the language that you're wielding as natives, both so you know the connotations of the words, which is key to how these translators will capture and transmit the power of language, and also that you speak the words correctly, like a native would, which is also key to unlocking their power and magic. This is why then so many of these babblers are foreigners brought in from colonies at the heart of the colonial empire. But in Oxford, they are the non-white students in a world of white domination in a place built on messages of white superiority. And although they are in a position of privilege, they learn quickly that they are in this world, but they will never entirely belong to it. As long as they do the empire's bidding, serve as its engine, for this they will be protected and given some of the benefits and luxuries of this world. But there is a clear sense that to the empire, ultimately, they are expendable, especially if they don't mind their place and purpose. Written to a backdrop of 19th century England, but written from our era, it is an intentionally pointed story. It's about people, white and non-white, who are complicit in the yoke of extraction and rule. 
In some ways, the babblers are the Moseses of Egypt in that they get what the enslaved people did not, the benefits and protections of empire, but for being complicit in its rule and at a price. Especially for those who are non-white, they are part of an empire that doesn't see their full humanity, but for everyone, they are part of an empire that doesn't see the full humanity of all. Increasingly, I worry that as a nation, we're moving toward rather than away from the same paradigm of empire and extraction and what it relies on ideologically. This notion that people, any of us, is expendable. Even as the formal colonial structures have eroded and been beaten back since the setting of this novel, some of the patterns still endure. King would say, Martin Luther King would say, evil can be subtle and tricky in its determination to endure, as is the case of race in America. And colonial notions are similar. In our case right now, the wealthy, the pharaohs, the commanders of empire in the world continue to have the power and freedom to move the world to serve their needs. In fact, I wonder if part of the relief and surprise this last week of Trump's indictment isn't just its historic breach of an unspoken protection given in this nation to former presidents, but was the overall surprise given how rare it is for the high and mighty and the arrogant and the powerful and the wealthy to be brought to justice, to be told that they have to play by the rules and to have to pay the price when they break them. That not everything bends to serve them, that it cannot. And when I say it cannot, I, I don't actually mean practically, I guess, because it can and it has for millennia. And I want to be super clear that I'm not saying that power is evil per se or wrong. Though I do agree with 19th century British historian Lord Acton who said, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I do think that wherever we all, each of us, has power, that it takes a keen and disciplined soul to use one's power carefully and for larger good and to check, often best to check with your enemies about whether your ego and your own personal needs aren't misleading you in your exercise of power, our exercise of our power. But there is this catharsis for me in the Passover story this year when I read it, in this message that sometimes, despite resistance and stubbornness and big-headed, egotistical, heinous, ideological, ideologically evil determination, that sometimes the pharaohs of the world are brought to their knees when they abuse power. Because if they are not, 
then the moral center of our universe will not hold. There's something about that that is both comforting and emboldening to me this year. And I do find that I'm drawn in the story to the Moses figure. I do find myself yearning for all of us right now, some leader who could lead us into the work of the radical sharing of wealth and power and the great sacrifices, mandatory, that will be required for us to turn climate change around. But more than Moses, too, I realize that part of what's active for me in this story this year that I'm drawn to, heart-centeredly drawn to, is something else at work in the Passover tale, recounting. So, I know we have lots of different religious and philosophical perspectives in this room. People raised in very different traditions and no religious tradition at all. I know that we have people who are agnostic and atheist and humanist and Buddhist and socialist and every brand of theist and deist and whose religion is in connection to the earth and more. And stay with me. What I'm drawn to in the story is this character that is just off stage who keeps moving in to support the people. The character who works with the mother who wants to save her child and puts him in that basket in the river and then puts that child into the court of Pharaoh to try and change Pharaoh's heart and this character who, when Pharaoh's heart is hard, sends rains of blood and keeps upping the ante step by step, as my dad would say, being as kind as this he, she, it character just outside can be, but as hard as it must to try and move this king to surrender his false right to keep a people enslaved. This God, as the narrators of the story would call this force, this off-the-set director of big events, the deus ex machina who splits the seas and who has them collapse in again, who's at work in all of this. And to be clear, no one, not even Jews who annually read the Haggadah, celebrate the drowning of the soldiers and the chariots. No life and no loss of life is ever to be celebrated. But you can almost imagine in the story this weary God shaking her head and saying, seriously, people, I have no choice left thanks to your unbelievable stubbornness and arrogance because you will let my people go. For the sake of your souls, too, you will. In two weeks, I'm going to be part of this symposium at the University of San Francisco that's set up by the Center for Nonviolence there to honor the 60th anniversary of King's publication of sermons that were written before and during and after the Montgomery bus boycott that outlined his commitment to an ethic of love and to nonviolence as a strategy to live out the demands of that love 
And one of the sermons in this collection is called The Death of Evil Upon the Seashore, and it's based out of this Exodus Passover story. And in the sermon, King talks about evil as something real, as real as good is, as palpable and real in the world, and how recalcitrant evil is like Pharaoh, or our own evils of slavery and racism and poverty and war, and that we don't celebrate any harm done to defeat evil, but that we can affirm the force that is present in the story of Exodus and look and see where and how it shows up among us too. For King, God is a force that moves with us, not alone, not without us. It needs us. It moves with us to liberate human hearts and human lives. And last night, Carmen Barasodi, in the celebration of the Faithful Fools, talked about the 25 years of work that she and others have done to accompany people in the shared enlightenment, in the shattering of myths we have about one another that stand between us. And her wondering about whether all of those 25 years did any good. But if you had been in the room last night, if you were filled with the hundreds of people that that work touched, and they were not all of the people, there were almost 100 online and people, I'm sure in other places, 10,000 people who'd gone on the street retreats, she said, you would know instantaneously in your bones that that work was not for naught. And she talked about how her main lesson in all of this, her lesson through these 25 years was about fidelity. Fidelity, which is this beautiful word for stubbornness and determination, but maybe a stubbornness and a determination that has woven into it and through it a love for others and what's between us that keeps us in it and moving to greater purpose and connection, this force that some days carries us in the great mystery that we cannot fully comprehend. For me, that's what the universalist part of our Unitarian Universalist DNA, called the love with a capital L, that's not just a feeling, but this pervasive foundational reality that undergirds and infuses the world and puts into our own being and calls out of our own beings and lures us into the demanding conspiratorial work of connection and healing in the world against all the conditions that we see through time, this heart's dream that King called the not yet of the world that still pulls us forward because our hearts know, don't they, deep down that the pharaoh and all the ideology of empire, wherever it shows up again and again in the world like a weed, a horrific evil weed, that it cannot claim the day. That it might, but it cannot. 
that even the small pharaohs of our own hearts cannot claim the day. They need to be washed free so that the life that we're made for, the life that is of love and not power that defends petty ego or unequal gain, that the life we're meant for takes root. This year, that's what the Passover story has anchored in me or that I feel hooked to in it. In the book Babel, the three main characters who were brought to serve empire, but whose humanity is most expendable if they fail to serve it, have this heartbreaking and emboldening realization of their deep desire to be seen and loved and cherished for themselves. Ultimately, it's that that gives clarity and purpose and nobility and transcendence and courage to their lives. Call it what you might, wherever it shows up, this is the force we're talking about in all of its forms and all the ways we see it and know it, this force that moved the Israelites to fight for freedom against all the setbacks that kept the faithful fools faithful, that buoyed and inspired the people of Montgomery for the 381 days without public transportation, and everyone who has faced resistance to evil and all it can muster in the circumstances when it's being asked to give up something that isn't rightly its in the first place. And what I love about the Passover story this year, what's sticking to me, what I need to hear is not that liberation isn't easy because I think I knew that, and it's not that power will concede without a fight because I think I knew in my own heart and my own struggles that power doesn't concede without a fight often, and what I need instead is just that what, whatever would say in the world that Anything that is permitted to diminish the humanity of any of us, anything that would treat us as anything less than fully human, any of us, that this is, this is somehow against a mysterious, miraculous, gorgeous, enduring, beating heart of the universe we live in and that that is powerfully, stubbornly, enduringly, miraculously, metaphysically, existentially, teleologically true. And I'm gonna hang on to that. That we're born to love and to be loved and called to love one another and the stories like the ones of the next two weeks say that love and liberation of the human heart will claim the day. And may it be so. Amen.
I grew up in a Unitarian Universalist household, and each year we would have a rather quick Passover Seder at home. My dad, whose parents were very connected to their cultural Jewish community, despite being staunch atheists, would always tell me how lucky I was that I didn't have to attend the large seders that he always did, where he would wait hours going through every part of the story before he got to eat. Much of the Passover ritual centers deprivation and suffering, as it is a remembrance of my ancestors' time as slaves and their rushed escape, as we heard. And so, I felt deeply neutral about the dry, flavorless matzah bread, and I could barely keep the tiny morsel of horseradish down that I was required to eat every year. But despite those road bumps, I overall looked forward to the ritual of the, and, and to the meal, which featured sweet apple haroset, roast meat, and matzo ball soup. Beyond the story of suffering and eventual freedom, one aspect of the ritual that always stuck with me was one of generosity and openness, Elijah. Elijah, I was told, was a prophet. We didn't know him, but we always poured him a glass of wine and left the door open in case he wanted to stop by. This, more than the words that we would say about how we should always welcome the hungry and the lonely to our Seder, always made an impression on me from a young age. We never left our front door open. And who was gonna drink that wine? When I was a young child, I thought this was kind of funny, like Santa Claus without the presents. But in hindsight, it changed how I saw the holiday in an important way. Our Seder was almost always just the four of us, my nuclear family. And we didn't even know very many other people who celebrated. It was easy for it to feel like a private observance. But Passover is fundamentally communal. The story is about a marginalized community running off into the desert together. You can't survive 40 years in the desert alone. You need a community who can help you out. And as Exodus tells it, you need a God who will give you just enough guidance, water, and mana to keep you alive. And maybe that's the Passover message that we all need this year. There are a number of deserts that our society needs to cross. There are problems like climate change, scapegoating of transgender people, and anti-democratic power grabs that are probably going to get worse before they get better. None of us is making our way to the promised land alone. And there might be some dark times coming when we wonder if we can make it to the other side of that desert and build a better world. But if we are going to make it, it's gonna to have to be together.